When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and I answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where I try to take the questions of the day and answer them as best I can. Today we have sort of a double header, um, because I didn't get it finished up yesterday, from our daily office readings, the story of David, Absalom, and the story that enfolds after Absalom's death. So the first one will be about um, David and actually how he gets the news of Absalom dying from these two men. One is from far away and one is a local celebrity. Um, And just the diversity in God's kingdom and of refugees as well. Very timely message, I hope, for how we welcome refugees from Afghanistan here in our country and community. If you'd like to be part of refugee resettlement in the Austin area, please let me know. I'm doing a volunteer training on Monday to help resettle families into homes and get them set up and help them with language and all sorts of other things. So if you'd like to be part of that, let me know. Um, runnermonk at gmail.com or um, respond through the Anchor app or call me if you have my number. I'll give it to you if you need it um, to um, be part of that, which we're doing here. The second one is about forgiveness and David's trying to reconcile his kingdom after it's been torn torn apart in the civil war. This, uh, what do you call it, when your son turns against you and tries to kill you? Um, patricide, I guess, is the word. And it turns into uh, filicide, where the king kills his son. So it's um, quite a story, lots of twists and turns, but it's a double header. So there's like two sections to it. All right. Blessings. Peace. Um, we have here the death of, or announcement of the death of Absalom, David's son, who has risen up against him in a violent uh, overthrow, rebellion. We've been following the story for a while, and there's this uh, foot race that happens between the Cushite uh, Cush is the land of Ethiopia. Um, so this man is a what we would call today an Ethiopian person who um, is sort of a foreigner, but he's also very connected to everybody in the story. Uh, we have kind of an insight into the world of the Bible through some of these characters that just kind of show up out of nowhere. Remember a couple chapters ago we had Uriah the Hittite, um, that's what he's called, Uriah the Hittite. Then you have the Cushite. Um, we like to think of maybe the world of the Bible as being very monochromatic, uh, everybody having the same color skin, and everybody being from the same place, when in fact uh, people were from all over. People moved just like they uh, do today, uh, internationally. They move for lots of reasons, sometimes for bad reasons, like They're trying to get away from something that's bad that's happening where they live, like refugees, or sometimes just for better job prospects. Um, We can imagine that in David's empire, where he is conquering more and more territory 
for his people that many people from all over the world flocked to his army and were hired as soldiers, mercenaries, um, and eventually a lot of them probably stayed. The Anglo-Saxons in England are an example of a people group that came to fight as mercenaries and ended up staying and became very much part of the, the, the scene in that land. Um, people migrate for a lot of reasons, economic opportunities and other things. And this, this Kushite man is part of this story. He's running um, against a foot race from Ahimaaz, uh, son of Zadok, Zadok the priest, I'm guessing, um, a high official. So you have this sort of insider-outsider foot race, um, kind of like the Olympics, where different countries compete against each other. Um, Ahimaaz, I believe, wins the race. Um, yeah, they're sitting between the gates. Let me run characters. Yeah, I think that the Ahimaaz runs the finish, goes first, outruns, he outruns the Kushite, runs by way of the plane. So it's not so much that uh, he's a faster runner, but he takes a better route, which um, when you're not faster than the opponent, sometimes it's better to figure out a, a way around. Um, several famous marathoners have done this in races. Um, famous marathoners being famous people who ran marathons. Most famously, probably P. Diddy uh, did this in a foot race, taking a taxi cab uh, in the Chicago Marathon a few times. Um, and others have done this too. The, the Mexico City Marathon of about four years ago had about 15,000 disqualifications of people, most of them from the United States, who um, were trying to collect like a series of medals. And many of them were felt like they couldn't finish the marathon, so they just took the subway uh, to another <laughs> spot on the race. And they disqualified about 15,000 people or 5,000 people that, that allegedly had run that race. But, um, you know, when it's uh, when there's no timer, you do whatever it takes to get the, the race done. And so Ahimaaz, who seems to know the land a lot better than the Kushite, takes a, a quicker route and he gets there first. And um, there's this really cool scene here where they, David is on the wall, sitting on the wall, looking for the news. Kind of like we look at our phones sometimes. I, had a, um, I knew a guy who did the uh, theme. Actually, um, he played in a number of church services. And uh, Jeremy, who um, played the Dukes of Hazard theme on his fiddle. He's the one that recorded that theme ages ago. He's a professional concert violinist who pay, did paid gigs. Uh, back in the, what, 70s or 80s? And that was one of his gigs that he did. But he told me once he was basically working, you know, for these gigs that they would pay him to play a little fiddle tune. And um, he would sort of stare at the phone all day, waiting as a starving musician at home. And he said sometimes the phone would sort of come alive and talk to him <laughs> and, uh, as he stared at it in his desperation for the phone to ring. Um, we do that now with you know, refreshing our email or checking the messages or whenever we're waiting for some kind of news of um, some maybe tragedy or some uncertainty like a surgery or, or someone's diagnosis or something. And so that's what David is doing. He's sitting up between the two gates. He's up there on the roof by the wall 
and he sees a man running alone. The sentinel shouts to the king, um, and the king says if he's alone, there's news. He's a messenger. He's not running for his life, or he's not escaping a battle with a group of people. He's got a message. This is the message system of the, of the world. Um, the messengers in any war are vital for the success of everything. They're the ones that carry the news. And until recently, um, they were the most reliable means of communication, and sometimes still are. They've been used, messengers have been used even now today in, in modern battlefields. Um, the Pentagon, the famous building in Washington, D.C., that's designed in the five points, was designed for a foot messenger to be able to take a message anywhere in the building within a certain amount of time from a central location, a command center relay message, like a little guy running. These were, you know, privates in the army. They would tell them, your job is a runner, and they would have to run. So Ahimaaz is the runner, and he's recognized. And then he sees another guy behind him. That's the Kushite. And the sentinel says, I think the running of the first one is like the running of Ahimaaz, son of Zadok. Um, do you know your friend's walks? Like you see him shadowy at night and walking and you can tell who it is. Um, we all have a signature like that uh, where you can like see someone and running is no different. You can, if you know someone running, you've seen him run before a lot. You can know exactly. There was a famous, or not a famous, oh yeah, he's famous, triathlete recently in the Olympics who uh, won from Norway. Won the triathlon, um, beat some amazing athletes in this very grueling race. And um, he had a very unconventional running style. Um, many people commented on this very unconventional running style. And some great athletes have had very unique running styles. Um, and so this Ahimaaz has the kind of signature running style that you can see from a long distance. Um, and, and the king, who knows him or knows his dad, says he's a good man and comes with good tidings. Ahimaaz cries out to the king, all is well. We can see the twisted nature of uh, inter-family warfare, that good news is bad and bad news is good, that good news that Absalom has been defeated is actually bad news for the king who's sitting on the roof waiting and watching for news of his son. And so this news trickles in, first with Ahimaaz, King says to stand there and wait. Um, and then the Cushite comes and he says, good tidings for my Lord, the king, for the Lord has vindicated you this day. And the king says to the Cushite, is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answers, may the enemies of my Lord, the king, and all who rise up to do you harm, be like that young man. And the king weeps for his son. Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, Absalom, would that I had died instead of you. O Absalom, my son, my son. In this message delivery, we can see that the Cushite <clears throat> believes in Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel, or at least he's invoking the name of Yahweh as he delivers this message. Here we see another insight um, that is picked up in the life of Jesus. When Jesus says why he is preaching the kind of gospel he's preaching to the kinds of people that he's preaching, he cites examples from the Old Testament of people that were from far away. One of them was the Queen of Sheba, who came to see the glories of Solomon, 
but also learn from the wisdom of Solomon. She came from the same place that the Cushite comes from. Here's another person who has come to this land to learn something or to be part of something bigger that he wants to be part of. And he invokes the name of the Lord. Um, and this is witness to the power of the good news. The power of the good news in the Old Testament <clears throat> is a slightly different maybe from the message in the New Testament. Jesus hasn't appeared on the scene yet. But it's the same good news that God loves you and God wants you to love your neighbor as yourself. So love God and love your neighbor. That is the good news. That is the way they're supposed to structure all of their society, all of their interactions, all of their relationships with loving God first and loving their neighbor as their self. And the Cushite is part of that. He's calling on the name of Yahweh, invoking the name of, of the Lord, saying that he is part of this covenant. And Jesus said in the last day, many will come from the east and the west and they'll sit down in the kingdom and they won't look like you. They'll look like people you've never seen before or met before. They'll be people that <clears throat> until they get to heaven, you know, won't speak a language that even sounds maybe familiar to us um, or that anybody else knows. Um, think of all the languages throughout human history um, that have come and gone in many ways. And to, to sit down in the kingdom with people from the east and the west, people very different from us, from very different times and places, that is the vision of the kingdom of God that Jesus has. And this Cushite, even though he is the bearer of bad, good news, is a witness to that. And so is Ahimaaz, the son of the, the priest. Here you have like the whole Old Testament rolled up in a nutshell. This king who has won a victory, but has really been defeated in the worst way possible with the death of his son. Here's this priest's son of privilege, who is a good runner, but, is, but, um, but also doesn't get the real impact of his message. And then the Cushite, someone who has come from far away to participate in this covenant. We kind of have the kings, the priests, the prophets all rolled into one in this story. <clears throat> and, and here we have David weeping. Uh, we have him weeping for his son. Absalom, O oh Absalom, my son. Here we see that all humanity is weeping the same cry of loss, of suffering, of defeat on this earth. And this is the answer to which Jesus is the question, or this is the question to which Jesus is the answer. That in his life and death and resurrection, he absorbs all of this suffering, all of this uncertainty, all of this defeat into his own body on the cross. Amen. This might be the longest reading we've had in a long time. Um, fairly complex, a lot's going on here. David is still mourning the loss of his son Absalom. And his soldiers have come back from the battlefield. Even though they've won, they come back as if they've lost. Because something has shifted in their trust. Um, we often think of the people who follow kings in the olden days as being... Um, sort of forced to do so. But even in situations where there's literally a king leading you into battle over you, people still have their own individual expressions of how they, how they feel and how they act. And the ability to run away and get away and not fight for the king is always present 
The king, um, as we know, David famously did not go out on the battlefield when Uriah the Hittite and the Bathsheba story unfolds. But he's been going out ever since. And he didn't go out in this battle. His generals took care of everything. And so his soldiers are slinking back into the city. They're ashamed. They're coming back as if they lost, even though they won, because they know that their king is upset that they won. They know that King David would rather have been killed and defeated and have all his army defeated. In fact, they know that they'd ra- he'd rather have them dead than come back and have his son not come back. His son is dead and his grief has clouded his vision so he cannot see beyond that. He can't see that the lives of his own loyal followers have been saved by this battle, that his own life has been saved by this battle, that really the, the integrity of the nation has been saved in this victorious battle. But he is, he is upset that he has won. And his soldiers are slinking back into the city as if they lost. And Joab points this out. And he confronts David. He confronts him in, out of concern and care. But it's nevertheless a confrontation where he says to David, you better go out there and you better talk to your soldiers because they're, they're about to flee. And he's talking about himself. We're about to abandon you if you don't show that you're loyal to us. Um, the, the, the hardest part of winning a battle in the ancient world or in today is your own people deserting you, your own soldiers running away. Um, unless they feel like they can win, they're going to run. And all sorts of psychological and you know coercive measures are taken to keep soldiers in the fight because at the first hint of their own loss of life, people are going to try to save it. Um, and so David is confronted with this. And then there's a reunification of the kingdom. Um, he confronts the elders of the land. He says, the people have come back to me. But the leaders of the dissenting tribes that sided with my son Absalom are still loyal to Absalom, and he's dead, so it's time to come back. And you can come back without any penalty. I'm not going to punish anybody for rebelling against me. This is David trying to reunify his own kingdom, which he's lost. And then this event happens at the riverbank. This guy Shimei, Shimei shows up. Um, Shimei, if you remember from earlier readings, is the guy that when David was fleeing for his life, when Absalom's troops and Absalom's army were surrounding the city of Jerusalem and had beaten his own troops and David and his troops were running away for their lives, running from his own son's army, Shimei went out on the road up into the, where everybody could hear him and mocked the king and derided him and cursed the king and made fun of him. Um, of all the things that have been done to David, this is the kind of thing that David cannot forgive. He can forgive someone trying to rebel against him, his own son. He can forgive these other tribal leaders who have taken up the side of Absalom. He can forgive all these other people. But to forgive someone who mocked him on his worst day, that's going to be hard to do. And Shimei falls at his face and says, I'm the first of my tribe, the sons of Joseph. These are the two tribes that spring from the line of Joseph, one of the the 12 sons of Jacob. And Joseph doesn't get his own tribe. He has two sons by an Egyptian priestess daughter. Uh, It's kind of weird. This is all the people being brought into the kingdom. And these two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, 
become these two powerful tribes that are always a little different than the other tribes. And Shimei is from one of these tribes. And so he's already kind of an outsider. And so when he pleads with David for his life, he says, I'm so sorry. I messed up. I sinned against you. I mocked you. I shouldn't have. I was wrong. David forgives him, forgives him and says, I'll swear an oath to you. I'll never, never do anything to you to hurt you. Um, It's this powerful moment of forgiveness, and it flows from David's own sorrow over the loss of his son. David knows that his inability to reconcile with Absalom has had an effect on every single person in the kingdom, has had an effect on everybody, even Shimei, this guy who has done him probably the most wrong out of all the people that have opposed him. Shimei is probably the person that he has stuck in his mind the most, that when he was down, when he was fleeing for his life, when everything was lost, this is the guy that tried to rub it in. This is the guy that mocked him. And yet he forgives him. Forgiveness flows from our own forgiveness. When we realize how much God has forgiven us, that is how we are able to forgive other people. We're not able to forgive other people on our own. Our minds remember everything. We can't forget anything. And so we're constantly, these memories are brought up to us. And I'm sure David remembered what Shimei had done to him the rest of his life. But he knew that this was a better path than to pay him back for what he did. Um, Forgiveness separates the cause and effect of our lives, of the wrongs done to us. And it flows from the grace that God has given us. Um, Forgiveness is sort of like a Rube Goldberg machine. I don't know if you know what that is. Um, Rube Goldberg machine is like, the ball, bowling ball rolls down the, the, the trough, hits another ball. That ball knocks over a cup. The water spills into a bowl. The bowl tips over, extinguishes a candle. The candle goes out and a string breaks and something swings. And like forgiveness kind of works that way. When we realize how much we've been forgiven, then we just pass that down to the next person. That's how forgiveness works. And David is starting to realize this that he's been forgiven a lot. He's got his throne back. He's got his kingdom back. And why wouldn't he extend that forgiveness to others? Jesus told a story about the unforgiving slave or the unforgiving servant, a guy who owes a comically oversized debt. It's 10,000 talents of gold. A talent is basically a day laborer's wage for 20 years. So basically a whole career worth of money 10,000 times 10,000. That's how much this guy owes to this king. And the king says, if you don't pay it, I'm going to torture you. I'm going to sell your kids and your wife into slavery. Um, It's over for you. And the guy pleads and he says, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have gotten in this debt. Please forgive me. I, I don't know what to do. And the king forgives him his debt. And the guy goes out into the street real happy. He's like, hey, I've been forgiven this 10,000 lifetime salary debt impossibly large debt. He goes out and he sees another slave, someone at the same social status as him, who owes him 50 bucks. And he goes up to him and he says, where's my money? And the guy says, I don't have it. I'm short this week. And it says that the unforgiving servant grabs him around the throat and starts choking him, starts choking him. Give me my money. Give me my money, he says. And everybody sees it and they run to the king 
and they say, hey, you know the guy you just forgave, the 10,000 lifetime incomes? Um, he was choking a guy in the street for 50 bucks. And the king calls him back and says, listen, you didn't get the lesson. When you get forgiven, that means you got to forgive other people. And you didn't do that. And he sends him to be tortured. This is the story Jesus told. Because Jesus is saying forgiveness works this way. And we remember that when David was fleeing for his life at his lowest, he is almost dead, nearly dead. He's, he's lost everything. He's running for his life. And Shimei mocks him and spits on him and curses him. We remember another anointed king, King Jesus, another Messiah, the Messiah, who is hanging on a cross, defeated. He's lost everything. His enemies have won. The devil has won. Sin has won. The people that hate him have won. And they stand there and mock him, and they spit on him, and they curse him. And when you do that, even if you do that, you can be forgiven. That's the lesson of Jesus, life and death and resurrection. No matter what you have done, you are worthy of forgiveness. No matter what you have done, God will forgive you. And David forgiving Shimei is a tiny little glimpse of what Jesus will do in the future. Another anointed king who is mocked and cursed and spit upon. And he'll do it for you too. He's going to do it for you because this is how it works. This is how forgiveness works. We always don't like it how it works because it seems like kind of mechanical, but that's how it works. And this is a school of forgiveness. The church should be a school of forgiveness. It takes a lifetime sometimes. It takes all we have, but it's worth it. And David shows us that and Jesus shows us that. And maybe you'll show us that, too. Amen. O God, the King Eternal, whose light divides the day from the night and turns the shadow of death into the morning, drive far from us all wrong desires, incline our hearts to keep your law, and guide our feet into the way of peace, that having done your will with cheerfulness during the day, we may, when night comes, rejoice to give you thanks. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. In a colic for mission on 101, Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched out your arms of love on the hardwood of the cross that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you. For the honor of your name, amen.